If you feel that life is just giving you more than you can handle, please realize that you are not alone. Welcome to Abba Daddy House Girls Speak Out with your hosts, the founders of Abba Daddy House, Myrna Thatcher and Annette Smith. We're here to listen and provide help for you and others. At last, you have a place to speak out and be heard. Now, here are your hosts, Annette and Myrna. Once more, it's Friday and here we are. Yesterday we had, we spent the day at Boise, Idaho. That's our state capital. And I got a point. Do you know what I mean, Annette, when I got the point? What's your point? Well, what's the point was I bent down to plug something in and when I got up, did you know if it's a, a marble pillar with a corner on it yeah it doesn't move my but head did moved. oh man that hurt Gish, <laughs> I don't know who put that there but it's been there a while and I didn't move it any well she knocked some sense into herself that's right well I'm Myrna Thatcher and I'm Annette Smith and we have a special guest today on our show it is Dr. Sarah McCauley and he is he has just written a book and it's just now out the soulful leader Success with Authenticity, Integrity, and Empathy. And let me read you his bio. He's a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. Yeah. So he must be like 20 or something, right? Yeah. He's young. He's pretty awesome, though. (laughs) He's a member of the American Psychological Association and the Massachusetts Psychological Association. Dr. Sierra McCauley has been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for several years, lecturer for the American Cancer Society, chief psychologist at Metro West Medical Center, and director of the Metro West Counseling Center and the Alternative Medicine Division of Metro West Wellness Center in Framingham, Massachusetts. Dr. Sarah McCauley is the author of The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience, which has just been published in China. He also authored Performance Addiction, The Dangerous New Syndrome, and How to Stop It from Ruining Your Life. He's written The Curse of the Capable, The Hidden Challenges to a Balanced, Healthy, High-Achieving Life. That was in 2010. And The Power of Empathy, A Practical Guide to Creating Intimacy, Self-Understanding, and Lasting Love, which has now been published in seven languages. Wow. Wow. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. How are you both today? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. I have one question for you. One? That's all? Can you speak all those languages? (laughs) (laughs) You know, years ago when when The Power of Empathy was published in China, I had, interestingly, I had a Chinese patient who I did Skype sessions with in China, and she came to the U.S., and I had just gotten the book published in Chinese, and she came in my office, and she saw the book, and she started to cry. She said, oh, my God, it's spiritual. Out of all the psychologists in America, I picked the one who speaks Chinese. And I said, oh uh, actually, actually, I don't speak Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> and then did she I, cry I, I, again? So I disappointed her right from, from minute one. <clears throat> well, that's okay. I'm, I'm sure you impressed her from then on. Yeah, we've, we I, had a good relationship. That's good. Well, we have your book right here in our hot little hands, and we have been excited about it. So, mm-hmm. can you just share with us what what are the characteristics of a soulful leader? Well, a soulful leader is someone who leads with passion. They believe they have a service. They're very involved in their community, um, and oftentimes they're bright and have good business sense. But that's not enough to keep people, their employees, invested in them. I mean, really what it involves is being empathic, being a great listener, highly ethical with high integrity, and these leaders tend to be authentic. They're humble yet confident, and they're happy. They have balanced lives, yet they can be intensely serious when they need to be. And when you have those characteristics, and obviously we, we can't all display those every day, but if, you, if that's the basic makeup of your character and your personality, people will remain committed to you and your vision. And we know from studies, credible studies that I cite in the book, that even when people have to sacrifice income, they will stay with you to work in an environment like that. Well, when we, we read in, the, in your book about when you were eight years old, Mm-hmm. And you went to and you went to the wedding, and mm-hmm. your mom, you know how you, that was an interesting. That was a good lesson. Yes, that was a great lesson. That was mm-hmm. one that I'll never forget. 
Um, you know, we lived, lived in a little blue-collar town, and, and we weren't associated with many people that were educated in, in the formal sense. So everyone was idealizing in the family and extended family this lawyer who tended to be a kind of arrogant, narcissistic person. And uh, I heard my mother, as we were going to the wedding, knowing the lawyer would be there, kind of, you know, made a comment that I could tell that she wasn't overly thrilled with him. And, of course, I commented as a little boy, um, I understand, Mom, why you're not, you know, complimentary to the lawyer. You know, he's a lawyer. And, you know, I reading, listening to all these law, legal shows on TV and so forth was quite impressed with lawyers. And she said, well, when you go to the wedding, remember that I asked you if he will remember your name or anyone's name in our family because he has been in our presence many, many times. And she said, but the butcher, the, the person down the street who tends to give free meat to many of the immigrants that come into the town and is very much loved by many of the people, I bet that he'll remember your name. And, of course, you know the end of that story. Right. We met, we met the lawyer as we walked in, and, of course, he, my mother kept looking at me and kind of winking because he never mentioned any of our names. And wow. then the butcher comes up and hugs my mother and calls her by her name and my dad and both my brother and I. And, you know, um, basically was, she was saying, what kind of man do you want to be? Exactly. Wow, what a life lesson at age eight. Wow. Mm, mm. So, hey, doctor, what is, why is it so important to be an authentic, authentic in business? Because, you know, authenticity relaxes people. And when you're, when you're authentic, you're producing the uh, near-miracle neuro, neurotransmitter oxytocin in another person. And what oxytocin does is it, it, it makes people feel safe and secure. It makes them feel generous. And most importantly, it makes a person feel trust. And when you're negotiating with people and they trust you, things go a lot better than when they believe that you're, uh, in, you're acting in a pretentious way or you're acting in a way that kind of falsely accentuates your accomplishments or your products. So it makes people feel trust in you, and, and it's a compassionate hormone that's elicited when you are authentic, when you have empathic interactions with other people. When yeah. you're pretending and you're not your real self, you actually produce stress and the stress hormone cortisol, which has many negative uh, consequences and makes people feel untrusted, and they don't really want to do business with you. Yeah. You have studied this for like 35, 35 years? Mm-hmm. And yes. you have put Long a time. lot of thought into that. Just kind of what is the what was the process of you of that research that in that thirty five years? Well, I've I've always been a great believer in empathy and empathic listening. And you know, when I wrote the book The Power of Empathy in the in the year two thousand, I kind of surmised that it did something to brain chemistry, but I I couldn't really prove it then. But of course, we know now, in fact, that. Empathy, when you give and receive empathy, it does produce oxytocin, the chemistry, the chemical that women produce when they're pregnant. But it, And as I said, it is a near-miracle neurotransmitter because mm-hmm. it does so many things. It reduces anxiety, reduces cortisol, it produces calm, it reduces addictive cravings. And even now, you know, with, with fathers that don't bond with their babies, they're using oxyto- oxytocin nasal spray. They spray it in the nose of the, of the dad. And the dads suddenly find that they can bond with their children more. They're even using it in, um, in a treatment for autism now because it's such really? a powerful neurochemical. So I, I didn't know that it did that, but I know when people listen to each other with empathy that it really causes a significant change. Now we know that we can prove that it causes a brain change that I think is, is so uh, enhancing to our lives. But I really believe that empathy, this capacity to understand the unique experiences of another, I think it's, it's probably the most important capacity we can develop to lead successful, balanced, and professional lives. Well, we, we noticed that in the back of the book, you have in the appendix, like you're talking about empathy, and it has questions okay, so where you can um, scale your, your empathetic. I love mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Uh, and so... It's pretty interesting how, how how you came up with that. How how much of a validity are these um, are are the questionnaires back here? Well, the question was designed by me based on my experience with people. Um, uh-huh. I, I don't have a uh, um, you know representative sample to indicate you know how valid it is in many different populations. In the populations where I've used it, and I've used it in my other book, 
the power of empathy. So it's been it's been in the media for oh you know eighteen years now. So it it seems to be valid to me, but I, I don't have substantial proof for okay. other populations other than my own. The 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 science on empathy is is been repeated many 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 right. times. And we know what right. empathy does. <laughs> That's true. So, um, and there is a difference between. What, what, well, let's go into what's the definition of performance addiction because me, I was raised, and, and so Annette and I were going through this performance addiction questionnaire, mm-hmm. and I was raised on, um, in a performance family, and mm-hmm. I mean, it was all performance, mm-hmm. and I, when I was going through those questions, I'm going, okay, yeah, I'm. That's me. That's me. That's my family. That's me. Um, and it was kind of like, I'm a. I I would probably rate at um, severe. Yeah. yeah. Because to when oftentimes when we didn't perform, I felt like that our love was withdrawn. Right. Is that right. something that you know? What can you speak on that? Yes, I mean, I, what you experienced is, is actually very common in our culture, and I, I coined the, the term performance addiction, which means basically that it's a belief that perfecting appearance and achieving status will secure love and respect. It's an irrational belief system that, that begins in our families, but then it's reinforced by the culture because, you know, our culture is so, so, so emphatic on appearance and status. And I think we've traded appearance and status for character and, and good behavior and, you know, character and relationship uh, skills have, have, have taken a backseat to status and appearance. But performance addiction, it, it makes people very unhappy because they try to perfect their way into happiness and you can't do that. And your example was an excellent one because, you know, we all want to be loved. And if we don't get the amount of love that we really deserve, the amount of empathy and validation that we deserve as young people, and then we achieve, we hit a home run or we get, we get the lead role in a play and suddenly we see our parents are pleased and all of a sudden we say, oh, that's the way to get their love. That's the way to get people's love and respect in life. You achieve. But achievement right. can't make up for old hurts. And then right. you're on the quest. And that's what I, you know, many CEOs that I've dealt with who are extremely successful in the corporate world and extremely and, and, and well-respected for their business acumen, I mean, they tend to have miserable personal lives because they are performance addicts. And, you know, they're always comparing and contrasting themselves to others. And, of course, they do that, the same thing to their kids and their spouses, and they can kind of drive people crazy with that. Well, everybody the- then has to be so careful because everyone has been taught to be trying to be so perfectionistic. Exactly. When I was, I went, when I was going through my, um, when I was going through my graduate school, I remember standing, I, w- I had been work, studying all day long, and I remember standing in my house and saying, I, if the light finally came on, doctor, because I thought, I am, because tr- my dad had died, I said, I am trying to please a dead man. Mm. And, and that's mm. when that performance addiction just popped on like a light. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, and then you know, so then I thought, oh my goodness, because I made a 4.0 through all my college years, and it wasn't because I was smart so much as it was because I thought I had to do that. Well, I hate well, to interrupt I, this. I, I, bet, I bet it was both. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to interrupt this, but we have to go to break, and we'll finish talking to the doctor about the book and what he's done, and it's great. I really love this. So we'll go to break and talk about it when we come back. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. Look for Annette and Myrna's book, Turning the Curse into a Blessing, a testimony of God's healing power. The book elucidates the journey of how Annette Smith gained healing from living as a child and other people. The book is available through Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle formats. Anyone who is looking for guidance from God and feeling that life is hopeless should read this book. Turning the Curse into a Blessing, a testimony of God's healing power. Find it today. Abba Daddy House Incorporated was founded by Myrna Thatcher and Annette Smith. We provide pro bono counseling for those caught in the insurance gap. 
We also provide basic needs for those who have great difficulty making it from one month to the next. Donations for expanding our business are always appreciated. Remember Philippians 4, verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Visit AbadaddyHouse.org. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are listening to Abba Daddy Girls Speak Out. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to abadaddyhouse7 at gmail.com. Now, back to Myrna and Annette. All right, we have been talking with Dr. Sarah McCauley about his book, The Soulful Leader, and I was just saying how I was just telling the doctor on break that I I got an A plus on his questionnaire on performance um, addiction because I probably got a sixty plus so I <laughs> I I A plus that one because I definitely have performance addiction which is okay it gets a lot of stuff done right yeah right you know one of our shows we may take that uh, oh this is good give that test well, you, to somebody tell you me really call understand it. it. I do. I really yeah, yeah. do understand that. I'm just wondering how many people that would take that test would pass be, it. Oh, would be honest. Well, there's not a. It's not really not a pass or fail thing. It's just <laughs> it helps explain some things, though. Well, I mean, I wonder how many people wouldn't be uh, a performance-driven. Most so of you, the people, in my experience, in the business world, test in the high area, especially mm-hmm. in the corporate world, especially people who are high achievers. Um, yeah. Because they, they have such difficulty balancing their lives. And what, what I always say is they've learned how to achieve, but they haven't learned much about how to love. And soulful right. leaders know how to do both. Yeah. To achieve and to love. Yeah, mm-hmm. they know how to do mm-hmm. it because it's a different skill set. And they, in terms of authenticity, your earlier question, I mean, they're the same at work as they are at home. It's right. not like a pretense at work and then they unravel at home and all their frustrations there. They're the same person in both environments. <coughs> hey, so where do you fit on that? <laughs> ah, you're challenging me. I am. I, I, I'm sorry. I got a call. I got to go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think the ER is calling. I, it's been very nice talking to you both. Um, where do I fit? Well, you know, I'm a very competitive person, but I've tried very hard to learn how to live a, a balanced life. I mean, I grew up in a even though I grew up in a, in a blue-collar environment, it was a very competitive environment. I mean, my yeah. parents, my mother was obsessed with how we looked, and my father was obsessed with how we were athletically. So, oh. um, you know, I, yeah. I know what that pressure feels like, um, but I also know the unhappiness that it can bring to a family. Exactly, Because it's kind of like the ball game's never over when the ball game's over. Well, it's, you learn that success and that good feeling is very fleeting because achievements are fleeting. Exactly. Now, I remember Dustin Hoffman told a story when he, he won an Oscar for, um, what was that movie? Oh, The, um, the Graduate with Anne Bancroft. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he won an Oscar. He was a young man, and when he came off the stage, one of the, the journalists came up to him and asked, so what's next? What's next? And he said he fell into a depression because he thought, well, I won an Oscar. Isn't that it? And mm. you realize that you got to keep doing it. And as one of one one of my clients is a professional, was a professional baseball player. He said, you know, in in our world, you're only as good as today's home run. Yesterday's home run is gone. Exactly. You strike out three times today, nobody loves you. You hit a home right. run tomorrow, they love you. They clap when you hit a home run. They boo you when you strike out. Mm-hmm. Everything is dependent on performance. So you you learn that your sense of self is dependent on on performance. One of the women in one of my groups yesterday was, I had to do leadership and communication groups ongoing for many years, and she was saying that, you know, even though she knows she's being asked to do things that are, like, literally impossible, that she can never resist driving herself crazy to try to please her boss. (laughs) And, you know, we were trying, and and all around the circle, people were saying that on and on, that, you know, because they're all high achievers, and that they're go-to people, and, of course, they get asked to do more and more, and... 
It's like a salesman who meets his number, and then the boss says, you know, that's great. You get, you get your bonus, but now we doubled your, your quota. And, you know, because they keep pushing you, and people buy into it, that in order to get their love and respect, you've got to keep driving yourself crazy and working 12, 13, 14 hours. One of my clients that I was just meeting with this morning, we have to do Skype sessions because, you know, she can't drive here because she's working from home, and she, she's worked seven weekends in a row. Um, as a project manager for a major company and, you know, I was going to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning and up at 6 and, and then traveling every other week and, you know, she's she's in her third marriage and it's understandable why. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Yeah. How is empathy different than sympathy? Well, sympathy rushes in to console and empathy slows down a process to understand the facts. I'll, I'll give you an example. One of my clients came from California, and her dad had passed away in the last year, and she moved to Massachusetts. Her husband took a job here, and she did as well. But she was very, very dismayed and depressed by her dad's death because she was extremely close to him. Anyway, in her neighborhood, she heard that a woman down the street, that her dad had just passed away. And she had, she had met the woman just to say hello to when she was introduced, but she didn't know her very well. So she put together a basket of flour and some food, and she went down to the neighbor to ring and rang her doorbell. And when the woman answered the door, she said, oh, my God, I heard that your dad just passed away. You must be devastated. I'm so, so sorry. And she looked at my client, and she said, you know, I'm sorry, um, but I'm not devastated. You know, my father left us. My, me and my brother, I was two years old and my brother was four. I don't even know what my father looks like. I, I know you at this moment more than I've ever known him. Mm. And see, that was sympathy. She was rushing in based on identification. If, you're, if you lost your dad and you're devastated, uh, then the person next door must be devastated as well. Now, empathy would have slowed down that process and said, well, what kind of relationship did you have with your father? Are you close? Are you distant? Um, they would have tried to understand the facts of their relationship before making a call. Right. Well, what is the dark side of empathy? Well, the dark side of empathy is that empathy, it, remember, empathy is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another. And it can be used for positive reasons, but also good salesmen have empathy. And in fact, psychopaths have had empathy. When I wrote The Power of Empathy, I said Adolf Hitler had empathy. And I, got, I took a lot of, you know, flack from journalists when I was okay, interviewed on shows because Hitler read the German people. He knew what they wanted to hear, and he read, he read them accurately, and then he influenced them. So there's a dark side, just like a salesman selling you a product that you really shouldn't be buying, but, you know, because they're very good at sort of getting into your psyche as, as to what you want to hear, and, boy, your hair is very pretty, or, you know, you express yourself so well, and, you know... The good ones are, aren't as obvious. They do it in very subtle ways, but they really don't care about you. They're, they're talking to you personally. They're trying to manipulate you into liking them and producing that oxytocin that we talked about earlier so you buy the product. So that's the dark side of empathy, being able to read people to manipulate them for your own self-interest, not because you care about them. So why is there a resistance then to empathy? I'm sorry? Why is there a resistance to empathy? Well, what, what, what are you thinking in terms of resistance? Well, you, you have in your book that Angelo is a very successful entrepreneur who immigrated from Europe to the U.S. to study business in Boston. Mm-hmm. And, and he initially struggled to adapt to American culture and has tried to fit in and become a success story. He idolizes those who have attained great success and wealth. And... Um, I don't want to read all of it. And after listening mm-hmm. to Angelo for a few sessions, it was clear that the major issue in his life was his marriage, not his business. He told us that he was puzzled as to why he could be empathetic to his employees, but not to his wife. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, okay, that's a good example. The, the mm-hmm. resistance there is he, he can display empathy at work because he's in a role at work. He's the, he's the CEO, the president of a company, so people are looking up to him. And he doesn't have to be too close to him. When he's with his wife, he runs away from any kind of difference of opinion or conflict with her. He'll stay out late and, 
you know, go out to a restaurant and drink with his, with his friends or his associates. Because if you use empathy in a close personal love relationship, it means you have to be vulnerable. You have, you have to reveal yourself. And you have to love the character and the soul of the other person. His way of loving is more based on what I call image love. Rather than him loving from an empathic perspective, he loves the fact that his wife is a doctor. He loved the fact that her parents were doctors. He doesn't really love her, though. When you, when you, when you listen to him talk about her and her qualities, it's like he's reading a resume, not really knowing a person. And her sort of falling out of love with him has to do with the fact that she consistently says he doesn't know me. He doesn't listen long enough. He doesn't stay still long enough. He's always preoccupied and on to the next thing. And, and if he settles down and, and tries to get closer to her, she's going to see more of him. When we allow ourselves to be known and we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, people see the negative parts of us that we try to hide, that some people try to hide. Right. That, so it's harder to open up empathically in a pers- personal close relationship than it is in a professional relationship. Okay. Right. Okay. There's one thing you talk about in your book, and it's called the blame game. Can you explain that? The blame game? Yeah. Well, I'm referring, you know, I always say that, you know, I think blaming is probably one of the worst characteristics that any human being can have because, and if you're married to somebody who blames or you're working for somebody who's a blamer, they never take responsibility for anything they do. It's always the other person. And you, you can't that, move that way. You know, you can't grow that way. The person who's blaming doesn't grow either because everything is dependent on the other person changing. You know, you made me do this. You made me say this. You made me the way I am. And, of course, one of the reasons <coughs> excuse me, that I wrote this book is I'm so disturbed by the leaders in our country politically and in right. the corporate world because we see a great deal of blaming rather than just acknowledging mistakes, being authentic, being open, being open to say, okay, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that I was being offensive or I shouldn't have said that. It's all blame, blame the other person, deny, deny, and keep spinning. And I think I think Americans really have had enough of that and are fed up with it. Yeah. Do you kind of think that a person that can't that doesn't take responsibility for anything is is kind of a narcissist? Yes, it, it narcissistic personalities, and I think they're prevalent in among leaders. You know, we know some of the research indicates that three out of five leaders today in the corporate world are toxic, and and. Four to five out of ten in the political world are toxic, meaning that they do not take responsibility for themselves. They, if they don't like what you're saying, they criticize yourself. And one of the other worst qualities a human being can have is being sadistic. In other words, mm-hmm. I criticize you, so now you're going to throw the kitchen sink at me. And what, we see this happening in our political climate every day. Every mm-hmm. day. And it's so disheartening to so many people. I mean, <laughs> about 60% of Americans polled not long ago say that this is the worst, they believe this is the worst period in, our, in their lifetime in America. <laughs> so we see very little of uniting, compromising, coming together for the greater good, which is what soulful leaders do. Soulful leaders love to wor- learn from a diverse group of people. And you know, we know from very credible research that diverse groups work the best. Why? Because they... they they see all the. They see many more variables in a situation. If you have a group of ten men, ten white men, in a, in a group trying to decide what products to sell, <clears throat> you're very limited in terms of what they're going to see. But if you have two white men, two black women, three Hispanic men, uh, someone else from uh, Venezuela, and one from England, you're going to see. You're going to see the world in a much larger scope. Exactly. So you can, you can design your products, and you have a much better idea what an entire population may want, not a very small piece of the population. Right. You also um, talk in your book but about um, love is elusive for corporate leaders. But first of all, I want, I'd, like, I'd be interested in your definition of love. Well, my, my definition of love is actually knowing in a very comprehensive way, in a deep way, the soul and the heart of another human being, knowing their character. 
And I think deep love is based on loving another person's character. It's not based on exclusively what a person looks like. It's not based exclusively on where they came from or where they went to school. It's based on who they are and how they are, how they interact with other people. I like that. So would you almost say that it's unconditional? No, I wouldn't say that it's unconditional because I think that love has conditions as adults. I think that as a baby, as a young child, you should receive unconditional love, and, and hopefully you're fortunate enough that you, you had that experience. But I think as adults, it's not unconditional. I mean, you can ruin love. If a person cheats on their husband or they lie to them and they do it continually, um, you can destroy love. It has a condition. Exactly. If somebody is mistreating you, if they talk to you inappropriately or a demeaning way, you can destroy love because that's a condition that's not acceptable to love. And that's a condition that's not acceptable to soulful leaders in their, in their environment. You know, soulful leaders come in their buildings and they speak to everyone. They speak to the receptionist. They speak to the person uh, mowing their lawn. They speak to the person, the secretary who's, who's printing their papers. Um, they, they want to create an environment that people can thrive in, and, and they love to tease out the potential of other people. <clears throat> So, but they don't tolerate that kind of divisive, sadistic, blaming behavior. They have little tolerance for that. Mm-hmm. So on the so as we go into that, so the so the corporate leaders are elusive to love because because what's the they're missing often agreement? are people that, they're offering are people who are performance addiction yep. addicts, and they're very driven to achieve. They're, they tend to be intelligent. They know how to achieve, but they think achievement brings them love. They don't know that the way you listen, empathic listening, really knowing and, and, and knowing the uniqueness of another human being, that's what brings love and, and sustains intimacy. It's not, you can't give someone a resume and say, do you love me? Because that gets old. You know, right. like, a, you know, I've treated many physicians in my career. They come home and they, they start talking to their wives like they're their nurse. And that doesn't work very well. Because mm-hmm. it's supposed to be a, a, a relationship of equality, not one is more important than the other. Right. You had you and you you mentioned in your book that um, they they think they have everything because they have all the money they need. They caught the elusive rabbit, but one glaring aspect of their lives is missing, and that is love. Yeah. And you gave an yeah, yeah you gave an awesome um, description of of what love is. And you have a sidebar here that says performance addiction is the belief that perfecting appearance and status will secure love and respect. And how sad that um, they'll keep fight. They'll have an emptiness. They'll have a void yeah, because yeah. they don't have love. You know, the you know, Bible I, tells I was, us. The Bible tells us <clears> the greatest <throat> gift of all is love. Yes. Yes. I was you know, out in. Uh, Sun City, Idaho, not long ago, when I was speaking for the Revelry Group to a group of 100 CEOs, and I was talking on this subject, and at the end of the talk, this man came up to me, the 76-year-old retired CEO, and he said, you ruined my day. And I said, what, do you, what do you mean? He said, I, you know, I, I, have, I own seven companies. I'm a multimillionaire. I'm a healthy 76-year-old. I have two sons. I have six grandchildren. Uh, two daughter-in-laws, and I see them maybe once a year. I sent mm. them to private schools, private colleges. I took them on vacations to New Zealand, Australia, through Europe. I bought them fancy cars. Um, but you're right. I, I never learned how to slow down in love, and I never gave them my time, just like you said in this talk. So here I am. I'm at this point in my life. My wife passed away, and I live mm. alone. And, you know, I have loads of acquaintances, but... There's no love in my life, and they don't really want to be with me. And my fear is it's too late. And he, and he asked me, he said, is it too late? Mm. And what was your answer? No, it's not too late. Because I said, if, if you want to learn how to talk to them and make amends to them and let them know in a heartfelt way that you regret that you, what you thought you were giving them was love, but you right. were mistaken, and no one has taught you how to love. And so many men in, the, in this environment, in the corporate world in particular, don't know how to love. They have to be taught to love. You know, often is- in my groups, people come in and they're referred by HR um, executives and, they, and they'll tell me, oh, this, this man doesn't have the empathy gene. 
But, you know, after a year in group, they develop the empathy because the, everyone has empathy neurons. We're born with them. But if you, don't, if you don't practice empathy, if you're not taught to how to use it, it atrophies like a muscle that's never used. Right. But you can be taught to be empathic. You can recover that ability that you, maybe you lost at some point in life. Love engulfs a lot of things. And there's something that you, you have in your book that is so, um, I don't know how to explain it, but it's so good to me because I, I, this is something I've always wanted from somebody, but it's called soulful listening. Would you explain yeah. that one? Well, soulful listening is based on empathy, which means that you're listening from a position of really wanting to understand the uniqueness of the other person and what they're trying to convey. You look beyond the surface into their heart and soul to see what they're really meaning. And, you know, so many times when people are, are listening, they're interrupting or they're doing what one of my clients calls reloading. You know, they're practicing what they're going to say while you're talking. And there's so, so few people who really know how to listen soulfully, which is really mean, I want to know what your soul is about, what your innards are about, what, what your deepest longings are about, what you really believe in, what your values are. Listening, empathy, the key to empathy and empathic soulful listening is being able to slow down, to not be speeding up the interaction. And when you listen from that soul position, you produce that, that neurochemical oxytocin, which makes both parties feel better, feel closer, feel more comfortable and more secure and, and happier. When you have that, and you, when you create that in an environment, when you're a soulful listener as a leader, you create that, that environment in, in your employees. You know, AIE leaders, empathic leaders who lead with integrity and, and empathy, they cause positive brain changes in themselves and in others, creating a spirited atmosphere that naturally allows product productivity, creativity, and financial results. You know, it makes everybody happier and happier people are more creative. They perform better because they want to come to work. They want to be there because they feel valued, not just for how much money they make, but who they are and what they contribute as a human being. You know, it's, it's just basics. It's that simple, isn't it? It's just basics, respect and love for other people. Mm-hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. It is basic, but somehow, you know, I, I, I wrote in the book that maybe there, there was a time in life where we didn't have to teach authenticity, integrity, right. empathy. You know, those three capacities, there's more training in those in the corporate world than anything else. Authenticity, integrity, and empathy. They're the top three training workshops in the corporate world. But I think there was a time in our, in our country where we didn't have to teach people how to do that. You're it, right. It, but mm-hmm. it came natural because you're right. It, it doesn't seem compli- uh, you know, very complicated on the surface, but it is. Even when you think of empathic, soulful listening, how hard is that? It's not so easy when you try to teach people how to do it and actually slow down and, 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 and actually listen to the, the subtleties of what another human being is, is saying. You know, sometimes my clients say to me, you must get bored listening to me talk every week. And I say, no. When I, I said, well, I feel like you're saying a little something different every week. Uh-huh. Because you hear the subtleties. If you're just looking for the generalities, it just sounds like the same old story. But it hardly ever is if you're really listening. You're right. You're right. We're in, we also do counseling, and, and you're absolutely correct on that. They'll tell a different story, but it m- might be the same words, but it's not, it's not the same story yeah. if you really listen. So where do, when did we lose it? When did we lose this authenticity and integrity and empathy? Well, you know, we're, we're a high-achieving nation. Yeah. We're, we're certainly not the top in happiness. I think mm-hmm. because we have so much here and... You know, I, I think we, um, unless you've been around the world or, or you relate to people from other cultures in other countries, we, we don't really, we've lost our appreciation for how much we do have. I mean, yes. you know, we, we were born here. We weren't right. born in Syria or Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan. We're no better than they are. We just happen to be lucky. That's what grace is. Grace is what you've been given that you didn't earn. We didn't earn this kind of freedom. We've been given it. Right, and and then we take, and then we kind of lose, we, we kind of lose touch with how grateful, 
how grateful and gracious it is and how, how appreciative we should be. Mm. Yes. And, and we've become a culture that is so accustomed to achievement and so focused on how much money we make. And look, I'm all for people making money. I'm not against it in any way. I'm all for people competing. But if you think that's going to bring you love in your life, you're sadly mistaken. And that's why uh-huh. so many performance addicts end up being depressed. Because they're so stressed, they're, redu- they're producing the stress hormone cortisol in their bodies all the time. And it's one of the most destructive hormones that you can have in your body. I mean, you know, it, it's, one of the, it's one of the causes of weight gain that is seldom, seldomly talked about. Because stress causes an imbalance in the amount of stress hormone cortisol in your body. And then that imbalance throws off blood sugar levels. And it actually causes fat cells to enlarge in your stomach, which causes craving for sugary sweet foods. It breaks down muscle tissue. It increases inflammation. It kills neurons in the memory center of the brain. It, it actually suppresses the immune, immune response to cancer. Uh, it causes wow. high blood pressure, on and on and on. I mean, it, it is so mm-hmm. destructive. And many people don't realize they're living with it every day because mm-hmm. they're moving so fast and they hardly know how to produce calmness in themselves or others. Right. Well, we're going to take a 30 minute we're going to take a break and then we'll be back to talk more about this subject. Change starts here. Change starts now. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. Abba Daddy House Incorporated was founded by Myrna Thatcher and Annette Smith. We provide pro bono counseling for those caught in the insurance gap. We also provide basic needs for those who have great difficulty making it from one month to the next. Donations for expanding our business are always appreciated. Remember Philippians 4 verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Visit AbbaDaddyHouse.org. Look for Annette and Myrna's book, Turning the Curse into a Blessing, a Testimony of God's Healing Power. The book elucidates the journey of how Annette Smith gained healing from living as a child and other people. The book is available through Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle formats. Anyone who is looking for guidance from God and feeling that life is hopeless should read this book, Turning the Curse into a Blessing, a Testimony of God's Healing Power. Find it today. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are listening to Abba Daddy Girls Speak Out. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to abadaddyhouse7 at gmail.com. Now, back to Myrna and Annette. Hi, we are back with Dr. Ciara McCauley, and he has written The Soulful Leader, Success with Authenticity, Integrity, and Empathy. And we have been talking about soulful listening, being a soulful leader, performance addiction, empathy versus sympathy, and um, love of all things. And love and grace. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, heard that, I heard that word in there. Do- Doctor, we have just... Unfortunately, we have just a few more minutes, okay. and we were we were wanting. So we want to leave these last minutes. What you would particularly want to speak about? What what have we left out that you want to get out to the world? Because literally, this is going out to the world. Well, just that you know, if if you if you want to be happy, and you want to make people happy around you, and you want to live a balanced life, try to expand your empathic capacity. People who are giving and who are empathic are the happiest people in the world. There's, been, there's no question about that. And what we know now is that it will actually change your brain chemistry and change the brain chemistry of others, whether at work or at home, with the people you love, the people you're close to, or the people you work with. So empathy and giving and goodness are the heart of soulful leading, and it's the heart of a soulful life. And we, we all have that capacity. It's more of a question on practicing it and being conscious and aware of living your life every day that way. 
can you can can you quickly tell me what image love is? I was yeah. Well, image love is again what we were talking about with that you know that CEO that I was referred to earlier. It's loving a person based on the surface. You know your it, your resume reads well. You come from the right oh, family, the right okay. college. You're pretty. You're handsome. You don't really know the person. You have an image of the person, and then you fill in all the spaces. And then you marry that person or you live with that person, of course, it leads to great disappointment because you based your choice on an image, not on really knowing. And empathy and soulful listening allows you to know another person. So when you slow down the process and listen carefully, you really get to know the person, not just based on their resume, but based on who they truly are and what their character actually is. So image love isn't a good thing then. <laughs> no, no, it's not a good thing. On in your book, it's it talks about rewriting a childhood story that mm-hmm. and this this is so true because oftentimes when when clients do come in for psychotherapy, they're expected to find out what's wrong with them and then we miss miss what do I want to say? We miraculously some t- how to correct them. You know, this is what's wrong with me, so fix it. It's kind of like yeah. Going to a um, going going to a car and getting it fixed, yeah. and uh, you know, because my husband just now got his car, his his pickup worked on, and so mm-hmm. anyway, um, we're having some technical problems here. Hold on. So anyway, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, because we had we had a technical problem there. So it talks about I'm not you're not so much focused on what's wrong with a person as you are what's interested in uncovering what has always been right with yeah. the individual yeah. that yeah. he or she has not discovered. Talk yeah. about a reframe. That is awesome. Well, I believe that we all we all grow up with a story about ourselves. But, you know, and we all grow up with some myths about ourselves that are not true. I mean, people, you know, as you know, people come in and think that they're not very intelligent, they're not attractive, they're not creative, they're not athletic, they're not a good writer. All kinds of things that we've been fed early on. But if what you've been, what you've been exposed to or who you were exposed to, if they weren't rational and good, objective people to give you the truth, then it's like looking in a cracked mirror and getting a cracked reflection. It's like looking in a circus mirror. You get a very distorted view of yourself. How many times I've seen people who are very attractive and think they're ugly, or people who don't think they're intelligent but are, or people who don't think they're creative but they are, because they have been exposed to people who haven't teased out their potential. So we all grow up with biases about ourselves and maybe biases about others. So I believe that our objective, our 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 responsibility as adults is we have to take that fictionized version of ourselves and make it a non-fiction book. We have to rewrite the story, and we can't do it alone. We're all too subjective. We do it through re- when we're close to people who give us reasonable feedback from, an ob- from objective sources. That's how we rewrite the story and learn who we really are today. Right. So just... As you rewrite that story with with people, what have you? How is it that the client evolves? What well, do you see? When, well, you start to see people have more energy. You start to see there's a smile on their face. You start to see that they 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 see that something in them is being uncovered, and that it, it it's not that it's it's false or they're just they're just mimicking somebody else. <laughs> They realize that it's always been inside them. Like people, they tell me someone doesn't have the empathy gene. Look, every human being is born with the empathy gene. Whether you've had it frustrated or you haven't been taught to use it is a different issue, but it's somewhere within you. And that's, I mean, that's the greatest part of my job. I love teasing out the potential in people. I love like taking people in the business world and helping them become a soulful leader because Mm -hmm. I know it's possible. Mm -hmm. They may not know how to do it. Like one of my clients who just left earlier, her husband is a CFO, and she said, and I and I know him, and she said, why he listens in such a general way, always gives a general talk. It's like he's doing a PowerPoint presentation. I said, have him come in with you. We can teach him that because mm. I know he wants to learn, but he doesn't know how to do it. Exactly. It's within him. He really loves his wife. He's a kind man, but you know he goes on and on and, and so well. You know, mothers are like this, kids are like this. You know, it it's too general. It's it, 
Empathy teaches you to focus on the unique aspects of another person. Of course, that's what we all want. We want someone to know us uniquely, not not put us in some general classification. You're from Idaho, I'm from Boston, that means we're this or that. There's a little bit of truth to that, but there's not a lot of truth to that. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you can't give something away that you don't have. That's right. That's a great point. That's right. You can develop it. You You can develop it. it. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Well, we want we just have a, a couple more minutes, but we want to make sure that people understand that they can get your book at open dot books dot open books dot com. Is open that correct? Open dot com. They can go to my website balanceyoursuccess dot com. They can go to Amazon. Uh, it's on all the major booksellers now. Okay, it's a neat book too. It is. Is yes, this is an it awesome is an book as well? Yeah, it is. And I again, we want to. The material in it is very, very good, and it's fun to take the inventories. There's the um, the authentic, uh, authenticity, integrity, and empathy questionnaire, and we're, we're for sure going to take that one. We will go ahead and finish the um, performance questionnaire, uh, addiction performance addiction questionnaire. I'm pretty sure, like I said, I'm going to pass that one with flying colors, and I'll get a gold, gold star at the end. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We just, I'm sure I will. And if any of my family members are listening, they probably need to take that test too. So um, we thank you so much, listeners, for listening. And we thank you, Doctor, for, for being here and uh, being our guest today. Thank you so much, too, for writing this book and all the other books that you've written. And I just want to highlight those again. Um, my goodness, there's so many of them. Um, the stress solution using empathy and cognitive behavioral therapy to reduce anxiety and develop resilience. The performance addiction, the dangerous new syndrome, and how to stop it from ruining your life. The other book, The Curse of the Capable, The Hidden Challenges to a Balanced, Healthy, High Achieving Life, and then The Power of Empathy. So we want you, we just get out there and, and buy his books. It's, it's good books. And we thank you again, listeners, for being with us today. And you can continue to connect with us, listeners, at Facebook on GodsGirl7.com, Twitter, GodsGirl7, email AbadaddyHouse7 at gmail.com, and, of course, our website, AbadaddyGirls.com. And listen to um, any of our episodes at AbadaddyGirls.live. And we want to, again, let you know, because we did not do this at the top of the show, we are broadcasting from John Mauger's um, Major Bargains here in downtown Cottonwood, Idaho. And, and if you ever came here, you'll drive right through and don't blink because that's all there is. <laughs> hey, and Dr. Ciara, if you ever make it over here to Cottonwood, Idaho, you can come sign our book. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I would love to do that. You both have been very kind to me, and I, I thank you very much for for having me on the show today. It's, uh, it was really a wonderful interaction. Well, Thank we'd you. love to meet you sometime. We would. We well, would very I, much I like. hope I hope we cross paths again. Well, email us when you are going to be in southern Idaho, and we'll see what's got. Okay. What, what okay. we can do. All right. Thank you. All right. You both take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for being here this week. Be sure to join hosts Annette Smith and Myrna Thatcher for another edition of Abba Daddy Girls Speak Out next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Enjoy the upcoming weekend.